0: Welcome to episode 2 of Proustian Paths, the podcast that takes you, the listener, on a gentle walk through the text of a classic work of French literature, Marcel Proust's In Search of Lost Time. I am James Holden, and I am your tour guide for this literary journey. As your audio guide, I will be offering you new viewpoints on all the key moments in the text. This means that if you're a first time reader of Proust, you'll be able to see the novel from its best vantage points and experience its beauty. Or, if you're already a dedicated Proustian, you'll get a different perspective on the people and places you know. In this episode, we'll be covering one of, if not the most famous moment in the whole of In Search of Lost Time. In fact, it's one of the most famous moments in French literature, and perhaps even European literature as a whole. I'm talking, of course, about the scene in which the narrator enjoys a madeleine cake dipped in tea. But before we get to that, I would ask that if you enjoy this podcast, please do consider subscribing to it on your favourite podcast platform. That way, you'll be sure never to miss an episode. Also, it'd be great if you were able to leave a comment or review and like the episode. It helps a lot. The famous madeleine sequence in Proust's novel is, in reality, only a very brief passage. It is, however, worth considering on its own, not least because it has become so important culturally. Another reason is that in many ways it gets to the heart of the Proustian project. In the Penguin edition, the scene runs from the line break on page 46 to the end of chapter 1 of The Way by Swans. If you have any other edition, it should be easy enough to find. Just look for the line break about four pages from the end of part 1, chapter 1, and read through to the end of that chapter. And if you're not reading the text alongside this podcast, but are happy instead just to experience the literary text through my eyes, that's fine too. You're very welcome here in our travelling party. Before we enjoy our tea and cake, let's quickly recap where we left off in our journey last time. We had heard how a man, our narrator, would for a long time go to bed early. He told us his memories of sleeping and waking, and especially of his time as a child in Conway. He recounted one occasion in particular when he was refused his usual goodnight kiss from his mother because their neighbour Charles Swan was visiting, and highlighted the trauma this caused. So that's where we are. The sound of the little garden bell at Combray, and of the young narrator's sobs, might still just about be heard if we, like him, listened for them. But now it is time to move on, to take our next steps along the paths through Proust. As always, We'll begin this new leg of our journey by drawing ourselves a literary map. We'll then mark onto that map some key literary landmarks, plot points, important moments of characterisation, thematic content and so on. We'll then use these to help us to navigate our way through the book and to admire the literary critical view. So if you're ready, if you've brewed yourself a decent cuppa and have cut yourself a thick slice of cake, or better yet have got a madeleine cake, Let's start drawing up our map of this famous section. The Literary Map The narrator returns us to that time in the past when he went to bed early, the time referred to at the beginning of the novel. He restates how, during this period, he would lay awake and actively recall his memories of Combray and how these memories only consisted of the drama of the goodnight kiss. He says on page 47, everything about Combray that was not the theatre and drama of my bedtime had ceased to exist for me. He then describes, quote, one day in winter, when, contrary to his normal routine, he allowed his mother to make him some tea. He recounts having a spoonful of this tea, into which he had placed a small piece of Madeline cake, and how, upon tasting it, something incredible happened. He describes suddenly feeling as though all the daily worries of life were gone. He takes more sips of the tea and cake, but finds that the feeling only weakens. Instead, he concentrates on himself. He covers his ears and then uncovers them, hoping to aid the discovery. He then realises what is happening. It is, he says, a memory of an identical moment which seems to have come back. Specifically, It is the memory of having a Madeleine cake dipped in tea in his aunt Leonie's room at the family house in Combray when he was young. The narrator states that when he experienced this moment of recollection, unconsciously and in a way that was totally unanticipated, it was a moment of profound joy. Nor was it just the earlier moment of tea drinking that had returned; rather, in an instant, the whole of Combray itself reappeared in the narrator's mind. Now, suddenly, his memories of the place and its inhabitants were fully present to him once more. Literary Landmarks There are a few locations and a number of ideas that we should mark onto this literary map before we head out. Pinning them now will help us to orientate ourselves in this important passage. Firstly, there's the Combray the narrator remembered consciously before taking his tea and cake, a place, so he says, plunged in darkness, where only a few specific locations are illuminated. Then there's the Combray that emerges from the cup of tea, full and complete, no longer in darkness and empty, but fully realized, light, mappable unpopulated. Between these two places, which occupy the same geographical space but different temporal locations, or different places in the activation of the narrator's memories, there's the moment he takes the tea and cake. This suddenly transports him through a relationship between the two identical moments, the two identical sensations, to his Aunt Léonie's room in Combray. Within all this, it is worth marking the following ideas, There's the opposition, set out here for the first time, between conscious, deliberate and voluntary memory on the one hand, and involuntary, almost accidental memory on the other, the latter being the kind of memories that are shown to be recalled by the T. Secondly, I'd like to highlight the idea that the past, gone and forgotten, nevertheless remains in objects that we may stumble across. There's the effect that the returning memories have upon the narrator, what it makes him feel. There's the deferment that we see on page 50 when we read, I had to put off to much later discovering why this memory made me so happy. And finally, brilliantly, there's the image so famous now of Combray appearing out of the cup of tea. The literary critical view, now that we've drawn and annotated our literary map, let's head out on our journey through this famous passage. We begin this sequence with Comrade and with the narrator's memories of the place at the time of his going to bed early. This town is only partially lit, he says only parts of the place are visible, and these are the places that relate to the drama of the goodnight kiss. He likens this reduced setting. To a stage set in an old theatrical performance, where a small number of locations have to stand for the whole. This is a brilliant image. It's important too, as we'll soon be off to the theatre as part of our tour through the search. The theatre will play a huge part in the literary and cultural development of our narrator, and he will have much to say about it. For the moment, however, and to be clear, he merely means to indicate that the entirety of Combray is represented by a small number of props, We are only shown a fraction of the larger setting of the drama. It is here that the narrator begins to draw for the first time one of the most important oppositions in the whole of his literary and philosophical enterprise, the distinction between, on the one hand, voluntary memory, brought about through direct and deliberate acts of remembrance, and on the other hand, involuntary memory. He says he was aware during those long mornings of reflection that there was more to Combray than the theatrical set on which his personal drama had played out. He says, The fact is, I could have answered anyone who asked me that Combray also included other things and existed at other hours. That's on page 46. However, he says that to recall these other things, these other hours, would have involved a voluntary act, what he calls the memory of the intelligence. He goes on to explain that, quote, The information it, the memory of intelligence, gives about the past preserves nothing of it. The past thus recalled is, in the narrator's words, dead. This is a complicated claim. Proust is here making the case that the past is not held in our intelligence. It's not preserved there. Sure, we can recall facts about places and hours, but the past itself is not those recalled facts. In that sense, the facts have no life to them, Having argued this, Proust seems to head out on a digression. He talks about the Celtic belief that the souls of the dead are transferred to other creatures or objects upon death. Incidentally, this moment always reminds me of the moment towards the beginning of James Joyce's Ulysses when Leopold talks to Molly about metempsychosis. Now Proust is not interested in this Celtic belief for its own sake. Instead, he mentions it as a way of introducing his own theories about the preservation of the past, the way it passes out of itself and into other things. It is the same with our past, he says. The past, for our narrator, the moment that is lost in the passing of time, is held in objects. He is not thinking here of antiques, of old objects that were made in the past. Yes, antiques are old, and they operate in the way he says. However, it's equally possible for a relatively new item to hold a past moment within itself and an antique to contain nothing of the past, at least when viewed from our own perspective. Locked-in objects, the narrator claims that the past is, quote, "outside the realm of our intelligence." This is to say that we cannot simply access it through reason, through active and deliberate acts of memory. Having established all this, Proust's narrator Turns to the story of the Madeline cake. He begins by emphasizing the chance nature of this event. To take tea, he says, was, quote, contrary to my habit, and he initially refused, only to change his mind for seemingly no reason. I do not know why, he says. This taking of the tea and cake, then, was a fluke event, the result of a passing whim. It wasn't a deliberate choice, a way to trigger something within himself. When he tastes a small piece of the cake softened in the tea, he suddenly experiences a feeling of happiness. He says he has no notion as to its cause. As such, it seems to come without cause. Let's look a little more closely at what this tea and cake makes him feel. He says, I had ceased to feel mortal. This is extraordinary, is it not? This man, who had felt sad, tired and old, And who would listlessly dream of his youth, now suddenly he no longer feels mortal simply because he has, entirely on a whim, decided to have a piece of cake dipped in tea. What strange cake is this? What strange power does this tea possess? In fact, the narrator reveals that this power does not lie in the food or drink. He writes It is clear that the truth I am seeking is not in the drink, but in me. He takes subsequent sips of his drink, only to have the feeling slowly fade. His efforts to rediscover the feeling are failures. He does, though, sense what is happening. A memory that's somehow attached to the taste is returning to him. Then, suddenly, it makes its full return. He knows what this memory is. It's of his time in Combray when he was young, when he had a madeleine cake dipped in tea with his Aunt Leonie. This is something that he had completely forgotten. It was a moment that existed in a past that was completely lost to him. But why does he experience this memory now? Well, he is clear about that. He writes, This memory, this old moment, which the attraction of an identical moment has come so far to summon. So this past moment has been called forth by an exactly identical moment in the present. The two have joined up. And with that, the narrator remembers Combray, not just the stage set for the tragic drama of The Goodnight Kiss, but the entire town. However, we should note that this town, which is no longer reduced to one setting, one room, one set of props, is still theatrical. The narrator says, it came like a stage set to attach itself to the little wing opening onto the garden. Proust explains the emergence of this place from a cup of tea with reference to a Japanese game of placing folded papers into water, papers which, upon getting wet, unfold into flowers and other shapes. So it was, he says, that Combré unfurled itself from the tea. This is a beautiful image, and shows Proust's ability to find the perfect parallel to help his reader understand exactly what he wants to say. It makes a strange concept the idea of a place coming out of a cup of tea, intelligible, and even allows us to somewhat visualise what is otherwise a psychological process of remembrance. It's important to consider the role of this standout sequence within the novel as a whole. What is its place in the bigger textual landscape of the search? Well, it operates in a number of ways. Firstly, we know that the narrator doesn't yet come to interrogate the feelings produced in him by the tea and cake nor does he yet understand them. We already know this, we are told it right here on page 50. That understanding is to wait for another day. Essentially, the narrator is teasing us. He may not have understood the exact reason for his pleasure then, in the moment being described, but he does now, in the time of the telling, which is many years later. Yet he refuses to tell us here, preferring instead to make us wait. And we will have to wait for a long time. The way from here to the room at the princess's party is a long one. It runs through almost the entire length of In Search of Lost Time. For the narrator, it's a life lived. For those of us on this walk through Proust's text, that's literally thousands of pages. But whilst the narrator might not reveal the truth about this feeling here, he does reassure us that an understanding is there to be had, and that it will be passed on to us. There's also the more immediate narrative effect of this sequence. It's the taste of the madeleine cake that prompted the return of the narrator's memories of Combray. These spill out across the next section of text, Part 1, Chapter 2. In a sense, the next 130 pages or so of text are the tea memories. They are the colourful reliving of his youthful time in Combray, accessible once again thanks to this moment. The cup of tea is the catalyst for the next chapter. I think the last dregs of my own mug of tea have gone cold whilst we've been taking in the view, and I've long since finished my cake. As such, I think we'll end this leg of our walk along the Proustian paths here, with the whole of Combray emerging from the narrator's teacup. There'll be time enough for a top-up, or even a fresh pot, next time. In the next episode, we'll be able to explore Combray in its entirety. Proust himself will map out the town and show us its life and culture, its church, its small shops and so on. And as we explore it, he'll introduce us to its inhabitants, from the narrator's own family, to their friends and the people who make up the life of the place. The section of text we'll be looking at in episode 3 is quite a bit longer than those we've covered in either of the first two episodes. To be precise, we'll be looking at the passage that extends from the beginning of part 1, chapter 2, through to the line break on page 134 in the Penguin edition of The Way by Swans. If you're following along in a different edition, this is up to the paragraph that ends, Taken advantage of it. This will take a little longer to read. With that in mind, and to give you some early notice, I can also let you know that in the episode after next, which will be episode four of this podcast, I'll be taking us from that same line break on page 134 to the end of part one of The Way by Swans. There, we will learn about The Two Ways, the definitive Prustian Paths. We'll also take a walk along the first of them, Swan's Way. But that is for the future. It just remains for me to say, thanks for joining me for this cup of tea and Madeline cake. I hope you've enjoyed the literary critical view. If you have, again please do consider subscribing to the podcast on your favourite platform and leaving me a review. Don't forget you can connect with the show over on social media. Just search for Prustian Paths on Twitter and Instagram and if you want to get in contact with the show, you can send an email to proustianpaths at gmail.com. It'd be great to hear from you. The podcast also has a fancy new homepage where you can find all the information about the show and relevant links. culturalwriter.co.uk forward slash proustian pathshtml paths dot I hope you can join me next time as we head further through the text of Proust's great novel. It's time to go to Combray. Look, I think I can see the church steeple in the distance as the train approaches. It's time to visit the narrator's great aunt.